Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1, 2, and 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess uh, now that our hearts are likely callous uh, to the way in which uh, we ought to grieve, the ways in which we ought to mourn. And so, Father, we invite you to send your spirit now uh, to come and give us soft hearts, hearts open to grieving, open to mourning uh, in your story, as you would have us mourn, as you would have us grieve. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at 3.30 on a sunny uh, Sunday, Nicholas Wolterstorff and his wife uh, received a phone call that without question, without question, uh, every parent dreads. Every parent dreads. Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, if you don't know, is probably one of the most brilliant uh, philosophical minds of the 20th century. Absolutely brilliant. But in that moment, when he received that phone call, this big giant in philosophy was reduced, understandably, to to a a puddle. He was undone. Uh, In his book, Lament for a Son, Wolterstorff recalls the voice at the other end of the line saying something like this. Mr. Wolterstorff, I must tell you, Eric is dead. Mr. Wolterstorff, are you there? You must come at once. Mr. Wolterstorff, Eric is dead. At 25 years of age, Eric Wolterstorff, the red-haired, dimpled son of Nicholas, uh, was dead in a climbing accident in the Austrian Alps. Uh, In Lament for a Son, which is essentially Nicholas Wolterstorff's grief and grieving process throughout this season, uh, he considers... What's happened to his son in view of this second beatitude we just heard read this morning. And he writes this. Blessings to those who mourn. Cheers to those who weep. Hail to those whose eyes are filled with tears. Hats off to those who suffer. Bottoms up to the grieving. How strange. How incredibly strange. As another pastor puts it. Lord, you might as well say, full are the hungry, healthy are the sick, even alive are the dead. And so if you're scratching your head this morning and you're wondering what's going on with this second beatitude, you're you're in good company. It's strange, isn't it? What does mourning and weeping and grieving and being filled with sorrow have to do with a life aligned with Jesus? A life aligned with his coming kingdom. And how would we even go about cultivating that? How do we even do that? Here's how I want us to walk through this second beatitude this morning. First, I want to suggest that we are people who need to learn to mourn. We are people who need to learn to mourn. This means not only giving ourselves permission to mourn, but learning to mourn, I think, the right things. Here we'll see that Jesus has a particular type of sorrow and grief in mind. The second thing I want to do is this. Our beatitude ends. Did you catch that? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. 
And so here we'll ask really simply, what is this comfort? Is it a spiritual snuggie with Jesus' face on it that we can kind of go to at times? What does it mean? Is it emotional? Is it relational? What is this comfort? And we'll explore here the comfort promised. Promised to those in Jesus' kingdom. Before finally and thirdly, seeing, and here's where I want to push us, how it's only the blessed mourners, these blessed mourners of, of Matthew 5, chapter 2, who are able to bring true comfort to a mourning world. And here we'll examine how this beatitude uniquely equips us to reach a broken and hurting world. And so if you're looking for like a fun, upbeat, you know, pop sermon this morning, this is not it. This is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we begin today with an admission, a confession, uh, if you will. Uh, We are people who don't really know how to mourn. And further, we live in a society, a a wider culture, that doesn't know how to mourn, that doesn't know how to grieve. And if I can for a moment, especially those of my generation, we don't know how to do this. And I think, and I could be wrong here, I think this is a direct result of the fact fact that most of us live in a story live in a narrative where mourning really doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. Let let me illustrate. If you're here this morning and you think all that matters is matter, all that exists is what we can see, that you and I are super advanced sludge, and there is no inherent meaning in all of this, in any of this, then obviously mourning and crying and being sad is not only nonsense, but, but an exercise in wasting our time. Like, it doesn't make sense at all in that story. Uh, to that end, Richard Dawkins, he's the famous atheist, he wrote this. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing. Listen to what he says. But pitiless indifference. In the story of naturalism, which even if we're Christians, we confess we live into sometimes, don't we? In the story of naturalism, of materialism, Wolterstorff grieving over his dead son, Eric, is about as reasonable as weeping in bed all day because you stepped on an ant. Because really, deep down, what's the difference? A few molecules? A little bit more matter? What's the difference? How about mourning in the story of relativism? Where what is important, what is worth grieving over, is actually up to us. We decide our worlds. We decide what makes us sad. It, it depends and hinges on, on me. In this story, mourning isn't foolishness. No, that would be rude, right? That'd be rude and we're polite people. Uh, but rather, is a totally subjective experience that is determined by you and you alone. And so if you want to spend a day in bed crying about that ant, that's your choice. And if you want to not shed a tear over the death of a loved one, That's also your choice. Mourning in this story has no moorings. Grief has no groundings. But what about mourning in the story of the Bible? Remember, Matthew 5 verse 4 comes to us, comes to us in the greater story of Jesus' kingdom. How about grieving in that story? 
in the story of what God is doing in and through his son Jesus. What are we to make of it? Here I want us to see two things. Two things this morning. And the first is this. And this is good news to us. I think it should be good news to us. Jesus, he gives us permission to mourn. He gives us permission to weep. He gives us freedom to grieve. Uh, Later in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And if you can think about Jerusalem for a second, Jerusalem was supposed to be this great place. Right, where uh, people could see uh, how God's economy worked in this city. A beacon to the nations. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and he doesn't see this great place. No, instead what does he see? He sees a city much like this. A city marred in sin, uh, particularly in religious hypocrisy and, and legalism. A city not free, but under Roman occupation. Listen to Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He's he's lamenting. When Jesus sees death, he stares at death. Death in the face of his friend Lazarus, who lies in that tomb. John, the gospel writer John, famously records for us, Jesus wept. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, said this, He was despised and rejected by men. Listen, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This might be crazy, but I don't think we, as the church of Jesus, do ourselves and the broader community any favors when we pretend that everything is fine and everything is good. When we equate mourning or grieving with foolishness. When we pretend as if the ideal Christian, the Christian we're working towards, is like this perpetually happy, you know, Ned Flanders, who's just sort of, you know, always smiling and, and always cheerful and annoyingly so. Right? When we hold that up as the ideal, if only I could get there, that's the real Christian. Jesus, the Son of God, who took on flesh, gives us permission to mourn. More than that, though, Jesus gave permission to those who came to him to mourn. And we saw this last week. Uh, two blind men approached Jesus for healing. And Matthew records that they were crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Weeping aloud. A woman with a demon-possessed daughter. Imagine that, parents. A woman with a demon-possessed daughter. Comes to Jesus. And again, Matthew records, she came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Jesus does not turn to the blind man and tell them to toughen up. He doesn't say, hey guys, like just figure it out. Like just be a man, right? Be a man. Jesus does not turn to the woman with the demon-possessed daughter and tell her that there's no such thing as demons and really what's going on here is just a nasty part of evolution. So get over it. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your breath. 
Jesus mourns and he legitimizes the mourning of those around him. Because, and we can't miss this part, we can't miss this part. Because it was the right kind of mourning. It was the right kind of grieving. Yes, Jesus gives us permission to mourn. But Jesus gives us permission, and this is the second thing we need to see, to mourn in his story. He gives us permission to mourn in his story. Where the relativist wants to say, hey, you mourn you, you cry over whatever you'd like. Mourning in the story of Jesus' kingdom means that we are sad about the right things. And this is really important for us to grasp. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, uh, he writes to them and said, hey, my, my previous letter was probably pretty harsh. But some of you are experiencing worldly grief and some of you are experiencing godly grief. Worldly grief and godly grief. And here's how Paul defines those things. Godly grief mourns what God mourns. Godly grief is sad about the very same thing that the creator of everything is sad about. Godly grief mourns what God mourns. And we'll see in a moment what exactly that is. But worldly grief, worldly sorrow, it mourns, you you can guess, what the world mourns, what the world is sad about. Listen to how one commentator, uh, Daniel Doriani, puts it. There are kinds of mourning that God does not bless. This worldly grief. Criminals mourn their arrest. Corrupt politicians mourn their loss of power. God does not promise comfort to everyone who mourns for every reason. Worldly mourning occurs when we make something, we make something, our family, our jobs, food, whatever it is, good or bad, an ultimate thing in our life instead of God, and then we are crushed, we're, we're destroyed, we're sorrowful when we don't get that thing. That is not the mourning of Matthew 5 verse 4. That is not the mourning that Jesus seeks to bless. Godly grief mourns the things that mourn the very heart of God. We should ask, what are those things? What kind of things should make us weep if we believe Jesus' story of the world? I think the very first thing is this. The very first thing you weep over when you repent and believe in Jesus is your own sin, is your own stuff, is your own rebellion. And here we see the relationship between the first beatitude and the second beatitude. Between blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. The root of our poverty of spirit, if you will, the root of our poverty of spirit is not that we are neutral in our relationship with God. It's not that just, oh, you know, like I'm just, you know, at zero in my bank account. No, 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 no. We are born indebted. We are born opposed to him, opposed to his kingdom. Our poverty is a result of our rebellion, of our own idolatry, my idolatry, my sin, my stuff. And that should cause us to mourn and weep, especially as we view that sin in view of a holy God, especially as we see that sin play itself out in our relationships with other people. See, the word for mourn here that we find in Matthew 5 verse 4 is one of the strongest words for grieving in the Greek language. Uh, One commentator writes that it literally means a type of piercing sorrow which issues in audible lament. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but it's a type of piercing sorrow which issues in audible lament, like wailing. 
This is not like cute crying. This is very much ugly crying. This is not pretty. Wailing and, and weeping. Interesting to note that the Apostle Paul uses the same word for mourning in 1 Corinthians 5 when he is describing the sin in the Corinthian church. Listen to how Paul employs this word. He says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And then he says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? In other words, you are bragging about a sin. You are bragging about a sin that not only uh, should cause you to audibly lament, it should tear you up inside. Uh, It should prevent you from sleeping at night. Uh, You've not only made friends with it, you're bragging about it. In Christ's city, we have to stop here. Before we look at other people, and before we look at the broader world and ask, how do we view our sin? How do you, sitting there this morning, how do I, right now, how do we view our sin? Have we made friends with it? Do we justify it? Do we speak about it like it's a personality quirk? That's just who Jake is. He's kind of a jerk sometimes. Do we speak about it like it's an irreversible quality? That's just who I am. Do we speak about it like it's not a big deal? Not something to lose sleep over. Someone who has been grabbed hold of by Jesus' kingdom, by his good news, mourns, weeps, laments over their sin. And not just their sin, but the sin of other people. If we can go back to Matthew 23, where we saw Jesus lament over Jerusalem. Before that, Jesus is pronouncing woes. And woes are the opposite of these blessed are statements. The opposite of the blessed are statements in the Beatitudes are found in Matthew 23 with the woes that Jesus pronounces on the religious hypocrites and Pharisees. He is calling out their sin earlier in Matthew 23. And if we're really honest, especially if you're like me and you're prone to self-righteousness, don't we just love that when Jesus is unloading on these religious leaders? We like that, right? It's like watching a revenge movie. Like, they deserve that, right? We like that. We love to hear the woes pronounced on those people because of what they've done. I mean, we don't like doing this to someone's face because we're not a very confrontational people. But on social media, right, don't we just love to condemn people, right, from the safety of our living room? Or how about in our car as we drive past something that disgusts us? Ugh, can you believe that? That's terrible. Make no mistake. Jesus calls sin, sin. He calls wrong, wrong wrong. But how we experience the sin of other people should not end with our cool, detached condemnation. Listen to what one scholar says. Most of us would prefer merely to condemn guilty. We are prepared to walk with Jesus through Matthew 23 and repeat his pronouncements of doom, but we stop before we get to the end of the chapter and join him in weeping over the city. We should be suspicious of people who talk about other people's sin with a smile on, who do it matter-of-factly. And we should be suspicious of our own hearts when we do the same. 
to mourn in Jesus' story is to mourn, weep over our sin and the sin of others. But if we can widen our perspective even further still, to live into Jesus' kingdom is also to mourn, to weep over what is not. Over what is not. Seeing how far our world is from the fullness of his kingdom should cause us to weep. About three years ago, um, I had a chance to visit a country where to be a Christian today uh, is a death sentence. It's a death sentence. Further, this country had just experienced, uh, bar none, the greatest famine of the 20th century. Talk about evil. Talk about brokenness. Talk about being discombobulated as you fly back to Vancouver and try to make sense of your life. About a year before, just more than that, my wife had been to the same country, except she was working with orphanages, and to this day can still remember the smell of malnourished toddlers packed into a small room. We don't need to go across the world to see that things are not how they should be. Vancouver, right, is not how it should be. Hastings is not how it should be. My home is not how it should be. And it is not weak to be crushed, to be filled with a type of piercing sorrow that leads to audible lament. See, Wolterstorff calls these people aching visionaries. Aching visionaries. Because they ache for Jesus' kingdom so intensely that they break into tears when confronted with its absence. And believe it or not, Mourning over our sin, the sin of others, the brokenness of this world, the ability to be an aching visionary is a gift from God. It is a gift. It is a gift because for the first time, we're looking up from our phones, we're looking up from the rat race that we find ourselves in, and we are seeing truthfully. We are seeing reality. We are seeing the world through the lens which Jesus gives us when his gospel grabs a hold of us. And as a gift, this is not something that we can manufacture. We cannot work ourselves into a tear-filled frenzy. I am not advocating for a sort of forced uh, emotionalism. A sort of forced, uh, out-of-controlness, uh, making us feel something that, that we don't really feel. And just sort of, I don't know, maybe play the music slow enough, I'll feel it. In his book on the Beatitudes, Daryl Johnson, he gives us this really helpful illustration. Therefore, the picture the second beatitude suggests is not that of Jesus coming into our city, spotting people who are mourning, and reaching out to them with comfort. Rather, the picture is that of Jesus coming into our city, reaching out and calling people to himself, who then, who then begin to mourn, who've had glasses placed over their eyes. Yes, they and we begin to rejoice deeply, but the story finishes, but they and we also begin to mourn deeply. So why do those called by Jesus begin to mourn? Because they have been graciously brought into a story where they for the first time, where we for the first time, where we see the severity of our sin and the sin of others. Where we see the full extent of how far our world is from the world that Jesus has promised to bring in full. This is the story, Christ City. This is the story that we need to learn to mourn in. This is a story that needs to control and frame and shape our grief and our wailing. But it's also the story 
we need to learn to seek comfort in. We move now from learning to mourn to being comforted. The second point. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just naive. But I can think of a million ways to be comforted in this life, in this city, uh, that are much easier than mourning, right? In fact, they're enjoyable, right? I can go to Church's Chicken down the street and just eat a ton of fried chicken, and that will be comfortable to me, right? It's much easier than mourning, much easier than grieving. So what's going on here? How is this true, what Jesus is saying here? I think it might be helpful to pop over to Luke's Gospel for a second. In Luke's Gospel... He records actually some of these Beatitudes. And the closest parallel in Luke's gospel to blessed are those who mourn is found in Luke 6.21. Luke 6.21, where he records Jesus saying this. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now because Luke is a super fun guy who you would love to have at parties... Uh, Luke uh, immediately contrasts his blessed are statements with woes. Luke's like, blessed are, and then woes, immediately. Whereas Matthew gives us some room, some buffer. Luke says, nope, here's the blessed are statements, here are the woes, back to back, deal with it. So Luke says this, Luke 6.21, let's read that again. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And listen to the contrasting woe in verse 25. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Fun guy, Luke. Here's the picture Luke wants us to see. If you mourn because the gospel has grabbed a hold of you and you long for the return of Jesus, you long for the death of death, you long for your sin to be no more, if you mourn because of this, you are promised the comfort of Jesus' kingdom. A kingdom that, yes, is already here in part, but is one day coming in full. But, if you laugh now, If you laugh now, if your comfort, your joy, your hope is in this world and the things of this world, on the day of the Lord, you will mourn and you will weep. As Jesus says later in the sermon, I never knew you, depart from me. In Jesus, those who mourn today over our sin, the sin of others, the way things are, will be comforted. Now, see, now hear me, Christ City. This is a comfort that we experience both now and forever. It is a now comfort and a forever comfort. How is that possible? After Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. These are the gospel events. But as he goes up to the, to the right hand of the Father, he sends his spirit down. Jesus seals us in him by sending his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. So we can know comfort today. Christ said you can know comfort today as you are filled with the comforter. This is the name Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit in, in the Gospel of John. As the comforter lives inside of us. And, and what we find throughout the New Testament is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the comforter is, is multifaceted. Happens in many different ways. Uh, in, in John's gospel, we're told that the comforter, the Holy Spirit, is reminding you of the promises of scripture. Where you say, I can't persevere, I can't go on, I can't do this anymore, and suddenly you're reminded of the promises of scripture, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The apostle Paul tells us in his letters that the Holy Spirit, it's he, 
It's He who brings other Spirit-filled believers around you to love you and serve you in the power of the Spirit. And so if you're experiencing any love this morning, and any love Tuesday or Wednesday at community group, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring other Spirit-filled believers around you to love you and serve you and to encourage you. In Acts 9, we're told, the Holy Spirit provides supernatural peace and encouragement, even, perhaps even especially, in the midst of intense persecution. The Spirit is our comforter today, and part of that work today is His reminding us of tomorrow. See, ultimately, and, and, and this only makes sense, the Beatitudes only make sense, the Sermon on the Mount only makes sense if our comfort is ultimately a forever comfort. At, at this point, we remember what has always been the hope of God's people what has always sustained them in, in exile, the forever reign of God found in his forever coming kingdom. Uh, this week, I don't know if you listen to Christmas music before Christmas. I listen to Christmas music before Christmas, and I'm not ashamed to say it. My name is Jake. But this week I was listening uh, to Handel's Messiah, which, by the way, I don't usually listen to, to classical music. This is the one sort of intelligent part of my week. I usually listen to nonsense children's songs. Uh, but I was listening to Handel's Messiah. And if you don't know Handel's Messiah, it was a, Messiah is an orchestral piece written by George Friedrich Handel in 1741. And Messiah, this orchestral piece, basically tells a story, the gospel. Uh, it tells a story of, of the Bible. And one of the first songs in, in Messiah uh, are, are from the words found in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, we find these words penned hundreds of years before the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to how Isaiah comforted the exiled people of God in the midst of Babylonian captivity. Listen to what he had to say. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries... In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go back to that first slide with the first verse of Isaiah 40 if you can. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says who? Says your God. It's the language of covenant. I am your God and you will be my people. Fellow mourners, do you hear that comfort this morning? It is your God who speaks these words to you. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah sees the same Jerusalem that Jesus would weep over that very same Jerusalem, pardoned of its sin. A new Jerusalem where the glory of the Lord would be on full display. It has always, always been the comfort of God's people that whenever they've been in exile, whether it's ancient Babylon or modern Vancouver, whenever they've been in exile, that they would take their mourning and their weeping and their ugly crying and put it Put the full weight of it on the hope of God's kingdom coming. When we forget about the return of Jesus, when we do not preach and speak of and encourage one another in the return of Jesus, we find ourselves outside the stream of history. 
We, we find ourselves unique in Christendom. It has always been the comfort of God's people that we would look ahead to this day. Christ said you need to look ahead to that day because it's intended to comfort you now. It's intended to encourage you now. Jesus is teaching us how to mourn. He provides a way for us to receive comfort. And here's my third point. This is the last point. Here's how I want us to end. And then tells us to bring that comfort to other people. And then tells us to bring that comfort to those not sitting in this room. To those far beyond these walls. I'm going to say something that might sound outrageous to you. But here goes. As followers of Jesus, who have been grabbed by his gospel, who by grace are being transformed into his kingdom people, you alone are able to bring true and lasting comfort to a hurting and mourning world. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you alone are able to bring true and lasting comfort to a hurting and mourning world. Again, Paul writes to that, that same church in Corinth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Now see this. See this turn here in the text. So that, for what reason does God comfort us? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If this morning... If this morning you have received comfort from the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, it is not only for your comfort, but that you might bring that comfort to others as well. The best thing we have to offer, both to one another and to those beyond these walls, is the comfort in Jesus that we've received by grace. By grace, we've been brought into a story where mourning has meaning. More than that, where we're told mourning is a sign of blessing, a sign of being, have, being have grabbed hold of by the gospel. So let's say this. The world does not need more superficial Christians. In fact, the world needs no superficial Christians. The world does not need more people with plastic smiles. The world needs aching visionaries who feel deeply the weight of the sin-marred and broken world and don't rush past that and don't ignore it or put it aside because it's uncomfortable. The world needs these aching visionaries who feel deeply this weight and at the same time are filled with hope for a better future. Hope for a coming kingdom. I think some of us this morning believe that we are too broken and too sad to be used by God. You've seen your sin and it's just too much. You've been, maybe recently, on the other end of someone else's sin and it's just too painful. You've seen the ugliness of this world and you want to throw your hands in the air. You don't want to get out of bed. And you conclude that God wants to use perpetually happy people, Ned Flanders. And so afraid to make Jesus look bad, you hide your sadness away and plaster on a smile at school, at work, at home, and especially on Sundays. Because that's a place for happy people, for get-it-together people, composed people. Hear the good news this morning. You are so wrong. You are so wrong. You could not be more wrong. I, I want to close with a story from the life of Charles Spurgeon. 
Charles Spurgeon, if you don't know, was a famous 19th century English preacher. And he had ferocious, ferocious bouts of depression. Looked at his world at the time and all that was going on was overcome by it to the point of not being able to get out of bed. Listen to what Spurgeon writes. One Sabbath morning, I preached from the text, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And though I did not say so, yet I preached my own experience. I heard my own chains clank while I tried to preach to my fellow prisoners in the dark. But I could not tell why I was brought into such an awful horror of darkness for which I condemned myself. On the following Monday evening, a man came to see me who bore all the marks of despair upon his countenance. His hair seemed to stand up straight, stand upright, and his eyes were ready to start from their sockets. He said to me, after a little parlaying, I never before in my life have heard any man speak who seemed to know my heart. Mine is a terrible case, but on Sunday morning you painted me to the, to the life and preached as if you had been inside my soul. By God's grace, I saved that man from suicide and led him into gospel light and liberty. But I know I could not have done it if I had not myself been confined in the dungeon which he lay. Here's what I want us to leave us with as we prepare to respond. I'll say it again. The world does not need more superficial Christians. In fact, the world needs no superficial Christians. It doesn't need any more followers of Jesus posting on their Instagram accounts about how Jesus makes all your dreams come true and life is super happy now. It's garbage. I don't know what Jesus you're following, but that's not the one I'm following and many of you are following. What the world needs, what Hastings Sunrise needs, needs, is a church full of aching visionaries. Blessed mourners. People who feel their sin and weep over their sin. People who feel uh, the sin of others and weep over the sin of others. People who cry over the sin of a neighborhood. People who feel that things aren't like they should be and mourn because of it. We need people in Christ City, East Vancouver, We need to be a people who through tears, through tears, offer the hope of comfort in Jesus' kingdom. Comfort now as we put our trust in him by faith and comfort forever when he returns. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.